Part 2. The Portal Here we sit, straddling our celestial ball, hurtling through infinity, flying dauntless away from nothing, through nothing and into nothing. And yet here we sit, taking it all so very seriously. Jack Hadley, Mind Dance Chapter 5 Someone was knocking on wood. I sat bolt upright and found myself alone in a big bed. The room was unfamiliar. Knocking again. Who is it? I said. Raphael asked me to tell you it is 7.30. I sat there with my breathing a bit tight, expecting Mahalena to come walking out of the bathroom, maybe still naked. My breaths came and went, but nothing at all happened, so I got up and walked into the bathroom, entirely empty. Ten minutes later, with my mind still struggling to click into gear, I walked out into bright sunlight and headed up the path, past the slumbering pool, and across the veranda, then on into the house. Raphael was sitting in a breakfast nook, sipping a cup of coffee. His wife Marge was at her laptop, watching the morning news. But no Mahi. Morning, Jack, he said. Sleep well? Oh, both of you, Marge said excitedly. Come see this. I just saved it, but I didn't catch the first few minutes until I realized what it was they were talking about. The saved video started up just as a news announcer was saying, At least three armed men, only forty minutes after the museum closed for the night. The night watchman suffered a concussion and remains in critical condition. The only art piece stolen was an ancient fertility statue from the Highland Mayan tradition. Network decorum blocks us from showing a photo of the piece itself because of its very lifelike representation of human genitalia. Initial police reports offer no leads in the case. Again from Marin County, a team of masterful thieves has stolen an ancient Mayan artifact while ignoring numerous pieces of considerably greater value. She clicked off the video. So a new twist in the tale, Raphael muttered. Obviously these thieves think they have the original, and this at least is to our advantage. Jack, come and have some breakfast. Hold on, I said. Where's Mahi? This we shall talk about over a cup of coffee. I sat at the table. So, what's up? He met my eyes steadily. This is a bit complex, he said. For many years, even before I was elected to Congress, I've been working with a group of families in Mexico and Guatemala. Their level of influence is subtle, but at times quite effective. I've now asked them to help us deal with Bernardo. And Mahalena has just now gone in my place to an impromptu meeting in Mexico City. Do you mean, I said, she's already gone? Several hours ago, he told me evenly. But please, relax. She promises to meet you down in Oaxaca in four, perhaps five days. Even if she gains support at the gathering, 
We still need to get the jade piece down to her father. My men have hidden the carving in your vehicle in a totally secure location. You won't know where. Only El Maestro will be given that information. And it seems luck is with us. If Bernardo and his thugs assume they've got the real jade prize themselves, they won't be on alert at the Guatemalan border. I sat back in blue hot air out through tight lips, my mind trying to process that information. Marge brought me coffee. I focused on burning my lips for a couple of sips, then looked across at the old man who was watching me with his fading gray eyes. Hey, I told him honestly, ever since I met Mahi at the museum, everything's been running wild. There's this slightly unreal undertone, like maybe I'm dreaming and I'll wake up. And right now, I'd just as soon wake up. I like thrillers, but this is getting to me. Jack, he told me, there was simply no option. The meeting in Mexico will be difficult. There will be conflicting participants, and my mahi could be pushed to her limits. She's strong, youthful, vibrant, but she can also break. Promise me right now, he said emphatically, that you will stand strong and serve that remarkable woman and her higher purpose. That kind of talk always got me edgy. I had to answer right away from my gut. Hey, I said, I don't serve anyone. But yeah, okay. I did sign on to take her down to her father and deliver the jade piece. I still intend to do that. Marge brought me plenty of good artery-clogging stuff for me to gobble. She walked off into the kitchen, and Raphael spoke in a hushed voice as I chewed bacon and hash browns. I would give anything to go with you, he said, but I am persona non grata in Guatemala, even if my body could survive the traveling. The lake, the culture down there, it holds my heart even after so many years. Please, go there with my blessing. Perhaps you'll meet with Abierta, my first love, Mahi and Bernardo's grandmother. You must give her my love, and also be open to receive her blessing. She's a woman of many powers. Also, he went on, you'll meet my son Michael, the painter, and who knows what. You have stumbled into quite a journey, an adventure, an opportunity. You'll meet at the Oaxaca Cathedral. You know of it? Yeah, I said. My dad took me in there a couple of times. Good. She'll look for you between four and five in the afternoon, each day until you arrive. Your role is to stay in the high heart and open to the new. There's something quite momentous ready to happen on many levels. A new opening. When you see that opening, Jack, take the leap. The odoriferous drive down through western Mexico was, as usual, a mixture of rank diesel exhaust and fresh, clean country air. I roared steadily down the main highway on the western side of the Sierra Madres, dodging local buses and long-run trucks, and sleeping nights in secluded spots I knew from previous trips down this same route. I loved heading south into Mexico, 
but it's a very long convoluted trip, and I ended up running a day late for my rendezvous with Mahalena. A flat tire and a flat spare and a whole day spent in Guadalajara resolving the situation were to blame, but finally I topped the ridge and descended into the great ancient valley of Oaxaca. Somehow the place always feels like returning home to me, with plenty of time until my rendezvous at four in the church. When I was half an hour north of the city, I drove a few miles off the main highway to enjoy a solitary picnic lunch. Sitting on my beach chair in a hillside meadow, inhaling the soft, cool, ageless air, I slipped into the distinct sensation of time suddenly standing perfectly still. And then, for no reason at all, I suddenly felt I wasn't alone. This feeling of an invisible presence in the air was different from Gramps being with me, but it was related, because I realized that the presence I was feeling so distinctly was that of my deceased father, swirling invisibly all around me and at the same time deep inside my breathing and my heart. The experience lasted for just a fleeting moment, and then Dad was gone, leaving me feeling seriously disturbed. Similar ghostly visitations of his presence had happened half a dozen times since his death, but still I had no idea how to interpret or respond to such spooky, non-physical encounters. My dad had struggled with ephemeral experiences all his life. He'd been a fairly far-out guy, eating his share of mind-tingling herbs and chemicals, but he shied away from offering any scientific explanations. Professionally, of course, neither he nor I were supposed to believe in occult dimensions. But here I was again shaken right down into the soles of my boots by a sudden non-physical imagination or fantasy or communion or whatever. I stood up and went to grab a second Dos Equis from the fridge in the camper, then sat quietly chewing my cud, knowing I was a bit early and not wanting to get stuck sitting alone in that big old musty church down in Oaxaca waiting for Mahi to arrive. And I wondered, had that intense feeling of Dad's spirit permeating the air I was breathing, had it been a subtle indication that I was doing the right thing, getting further involved with Mahi's swirling realms, or had it been a warning? Just then my eyes picked up movement over across the meadow, and my trusty amygdala fired off a burst of all hands on deck, as my granddad would say. Some young guy with a gunny sack swung over his shoulders, was walking right toward me. My mind fired off an instant prelim assessment. The fellow was squat but agile, healthy but tough-looking, as he emerged from the high-wooded side of the empty cow pasture. And my gut muscles, which had flexed for some action, they instantly relaxed. He slowed, then paused about twenty feet away, standing uphill from me in the grass. Hola, he said in a soft local dialect. I lifted my hand. 
he did likewise. His dark, steady eyes, his calm expression, his long hair tied back Indian style. I liked his look. Want a beer? I offered in Spanish. He came and squatted in the grass on his heels and took the beer I got for him. He looked about sixteen, but he seemed quite confident just wandering around with his gunny sack full of who knows what. It was stuffed, probably weighing thirty, forty pounds. Where are you coming down from? I asked him. Been way out, ten days, he said quietly, nodding up toward the high desert lands to the northwest. Good for the soul. One hour as the sun rises, one hour as the sun sets, I hunt for buttons, you know. I just let them come to me. They're in my sack, comprende? He reached, picked up the hunting knife, loaf of bread and hunk of cheese, and munched a while. Appreciative. So where are you headed? he asked me. Oh, farther south, down to Lago Atitlan, I told him, slipping into the local dialect that he was speaking. Ah, he said, I know her. Mi mamá, she comes from San Carlos, across the lake. You know it? Just slightly, I told him, from ten years ago. I go down there three, four times a year, he went on. Got friends, cousins, a girl I like a lot down there. If I make a few dollars with the peyote, I might head down next week for the festival in Chichi, hang out, maybe play some tunes, you know. Ah, I said, you play? Si pues, but I don't much perform. Not yet. I'm young, you know, and I like it a lot up there in the desert. You read Castaneda? A few times, I said. Ah, so that makes us some kind of brother. I felt it when I looked across the meadow, otherwise I would have just gone on. Well, I told him I'm meeting somebody in town. I can't be late. Want to ride in? Sure, he said, and I give you a few Don Guinaros for your journey. Just me to you. No charge. What you want for the whole bag? I asked him. Oh, that's a lot. That's like two hundred buttons. That's like fifty dollars probably in town tonight. I don't charge much. It's mostly just an excuse for the spiritual stuff up there. I stood, folded my chair, and went to the camper. He walked tentatively with me. I'd been robbed a bunch of times down here. But he didn't worry me. Just the opposite. Here, I said, a hundred for the bag. He stood there a moment, then grinned slightly in a way I liked. Pues, he said. It's just that some of my good long-time friends, they'll be quite highly disappointed because we're thinking of doing a local sweat tomorrow night at La Vieja's place. She likes us. She knows some deep shamanic moves. You understand? So maybe I keep a couple dozen buttons and you pay me less. We climbed into the camper and closed our doors in unison. Here's my side of the bargain, I explained. I want to treat all of your friends to that whole bag, courtesy of some crazy gringo dude you met out among the cow pies. Pues, he said, settling in for the ride down the hill. 
Are you sure you don't want a few guinaros to take south? La Guatilan is the primo place for peyote. Right now, I explained, on this run, I got no time for anything but heads up. Then may you flow fast and clear and clean, he said, and have crazy fun with your girlfriend. But you know what Don Juan, he would say, he told me seriously, but also with the slight mysterious team grin of his. He'd probably say that your entire flow through your entire personal lifetime was being continually created by the simple act of me waking up this morning and for some reason taking time to focus a little bit into the future and quite actively for around 15 to 20, maybe 25 seconds, broadcast to the material world and magical universe at large my own personal need and therefore my clear intent to manifest an easy and enjoyable and fruitful and heartful ride into town. You are, mi amigo, without any question in my mind, a fully integrated part and parcel of a new soul who has now entered within this peyote flow, consisting of me and my good Oaxaca friends and lovers, and also mi familia, which organically always includes all my ancestors, and all my children, when they shall choose to come. And thus we proceed onward unto our personal and shared eternity. This is my blessing upon you, my crazy gringo friend. Taking a pastoral country road down toward town, we headed off to enter into the buzz of the bustling, sprawling South Mexican metropolis feeling what I suppose would have to be called the raw anticipatory zeal of a local kid returning home and an abject stranger going just slightly insane at the very thought of suddenly once again being in the overt presence of the one woman alive right now who was rather crazily and hotly alive right here inside my very own inner breast. I was more and more aware that the weather in this big subtropical valley was changing fast. A chilly December wind was picking up intensity as we turned right onto the main highway that runs like a slippery snake down from Mexico City. Construction on the highway slowed us considerably, and it was 4.20 before we finally got to the city center and found a parking place. I got out with quickening breath, and we walked across the Oaxaca Plaza to where my new friend chose to take off with his bag of goodies. Giving me a solid head salute and a genuine smile, kids like him, they give me lots of hope that there's coming a future that perhaps is going to be even better than what we have right now. Although I was 24 hours plus 20 minutes late, I was certain she'd be waiting for me until five. The clouds had now entirely overtaken the sky, and rain was threatening, but the plaza was still abuzz with the usual locals. Ordinarily, I would have taken a bit of time to relax into the local scene here, but knowing what awaited me in the cathedral, I headed up the steps two at a time, my heart pounding loud and my breath fast and tight in my chest. I told myself to chill, 
but I couldn't control my excitement as I reached the top of the steps. Inside the church, the door closed behind me with a heavy click. Standing in relative darkness, my nose made the shift from diesel and smog to sublime, musty, and slightly stagnant holy air. I'd forgotten all about the detailed gold artwork, high-arched ceiling, and massive front wall. For me, the whole thing looked like a fantasy set-piece from some other dimension. There were just a handful of unmoving Oaxacans sitting scattered about in the rough-hewn regional cathedral. Nothing ceremonial was happening up front. My eyes quickly scanned the assorted meditative bodies. Not immediately spying Mahalena, I walked a few echoing bootsteps down along the left side aisle, then slipped into an empty pew. I looked all around more carefully. No sign of her. My watch said 4.42. Sitting there feeling hot and clammy, I quietly unzipped my jacket. I could hardly contain my disappointment. I had zero idea what to do next. Feeling definite now that Mahi wasn't in the church, my eyelids fluttered and then closed on their own. I exhaled all the way down to empty and stayed on empty like my Wednesday night Zen teacher back up in Berkeley had taught me. And when I finally surrendered to the reflex to inhale, I discovered that I was now feeling strangely good, quite nicely relaxed and at ease. And while immersed in the unexpected moment of inner quiet, Mahi came rushing into my mind, similar to how I'd felt in Dad's presence up in the meadow an hour or so earlier. I could sense her presence all around me, as a swirling mixture of memories and anticipations. My eyes popped open, the sense of her proximity so strong that I was certain I'd turn my head and there she'd be, sitting next to me in the flesh, flashing that playful grin of hers at having surprised me. I looked and looked, but nope, she wasn't anywhere in the church. I was still very much alone. The cathedral felt suddenly gaudy, pompous, spiritually empty, and way too lonely to tolerate. I got up and walked off quickly down the aisle and outside. Stumbling through the now stormy plaza, with wind and rain whipping at my face and blurring my vision, I zipped up my jacket and stuck my chilled fingers deep into the pockets. Street lamps came on over my head. I passed a fancy old-time hotel and thought of going in and getting a room and escaping the storm, but I wasn't at all ready to be inside. The downpour started to ease, and I let my boots take me around a corner and down a side street lined with dripping foliage. Before me was a whole city block dedicated to towering ancient trees, worn wooden benches, walkways, and an expanse of wet grass. Muted lights here and there gave the place an almost hallowed look. The rain had stopped completely now, and as I walked into the park, two kids were out tossing a baseball. I noticed an old man ahead of me at the center of the park, 
holding a large black umbrella over his head. He lowered the umbrella, looked up into the sky with watery eyes, smiled at the sight of no rain, and methodically folded the umbrella. On the bench just beyond him was a young woman wearing just a blue shirt and wet Levi's, sitting slumped back with her eyes closed. She caught my attention for just a moment before my eyes returned to the old man. Then instantly I looked back. It was definitely Mahalena sitting there, but she looked so different from when I'd last seen her. Her expression was now blank and exhausted, her clothes a rumpled mess, her long hair wet and loose and tangled. I walked over and sat down beside her on the bench, but she didn't seem to notice me at all. Turning my head, I noticed the old guy with the umbrella watching us intently from about ten feet away. As he met my eyes, he smiled a toothless grin and made a series of complex, wide-sweeping movements with his umbrella. The movements were perhaps supposed to mean something, but I couldn't decipher any significance to them. The sound of a gasp beside me brought my attention back to Mahi, who had just opened her eyes and realized someone was sitting next to her. At first, she didn't seem to recognize me. Mahi, I muttered, it's me, Jack, Juan, you look frozen, let's go and get you warm. She reached over and touched my arm as if to make sure I was real. I put my arm around her to warm her. For a moment she was stiff, rock-cold, not moving. Then suddenly she jerked upright and raised her head. Where is, how long was I sleeping? she asked in Spanish. I don't know, I responded. I was looking for you in the church. Emotions flooded her face. Juan, ah, finally, I had almost given up hope. Please, hold me. I feel inside my heart is frozen ice. I sat there just holding her, giving her my warmth. Time went by. Finally she stirred in my arms, raised her fingers up vaguely, and ran them through her wet hair. Oh, Juan, it was so terrible. Raphael's big hope, entirely shattered. Just then rain exploded down upon us, and I again saw the old man with the umbrella as he came up close in front of us, opening the umbrella and handing it to me. I stood up, took it and held it over Mahi's head. When I glanced back to the old man, he was walking away. Mahi stood up and looked directly into my eyes, searching for something. Then she smiled just slightly and brought her body against mine. Please, Juan, a bath, warmth, she muttered. I pulled the umbrella down lower over our heads, grabbed her backpack from the bench, and led her in the direction of the city plaza. Quickly grabbing things from the camper, I checked us into a warm, expensive room and immediately ran her a hot bath. She looked so desperately frail, weak, confused. What the fuck had happened at that meeting? When I asked her about it, she shuddered. For two days, 
she said in a thin, shaky voice. We made plans for dealing with Bernardo. Then on the third day, one of them, Lucio Fernandez, who must have been secretly working for Bernardo. But please, no more talk. I feel so weak and cold. She was unsteady on her feet, and I had to physically undress her and help her into the tub. Her entire life force seemed gone. With my heart aching for her, I sat beside the tub, making sure she didn't go underwater completely, not knowing whether to get her a doctor or just ride this out and hope for the best. After maybe ten minutes of suspended stillness, staring into the void, she finally turned her head and looked over at me, but said nothing. Hey, I responded quietly, tell me what's going on. How can I help? She looked almost asleep. Bed was all she said.